There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the case for impeachment, both the legal argument and the visceral emotional one, and the toll of the devastation of January 6th. In just two and a half hours, the remains of slain Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick will lie in honor in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. Officer Sicknick died from the injuries he sustained when he was hit in the head by members of the right-wing MAGA mob during the Capitol insurrection last month. Just four other private citizens have lain in honor in the rotunda, including two other Capitol Police officers killed in the line of duty, civil rights icon Rosa Parks and Reverend Reverend Billy Graham. Today, House impeachment managers laid out a searing argument for why the disgraced former occupant of the White House should be convicted by the Senate for his role in inciting the riot that led to the death of Officer Sicknick and four others. With an impassioned trial brief saying simply, His responsibility for the events of January 6th is unmistakable, arguing the Senate can try the former president because his conduct endangered the life of every single member of Congress, jeopardized the peaceful transition of power and line of succession, and compromised our national security. Adding that instead of accepting the will of the American people, the man whose name we would love to excise from this show, Donald Trump, quote, summoned a mob to Washington exhorted them into a frenzy and aimed them like a loaded cannon toward the Capitol. Now, we know that's true from the former president's own words and video of that day. And we certainly know that the senators who will consider the case against him were, in fact, themselves witnesses to the events of January 6th. With the Senate chamber, a crime scene and many of those same senators who incited the riot themselves and those now defending his actions hunkered down in the same secure rooms with their colleagues. And in a frank testimonial shared on Instagram Live last night, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez shared the trauma of that day, highlighting the personal toll the Capitol insurrection took on her as she took cover in her office and then in a bathroom. The whole time she was gripped by the mortal fear that she might not survive. Then I hear these huge, violent, bangs on my door and then every door going into my office. There were no yells, no one saying who they were, nobody identifying themselves, and just boom, boom, boom. I hide back in, um, in the bathroom behind the door. And then I just start to hear these yells of, where is she? Where is she? And um, this was the moment where I thought everything was over. 
I mean, I thought I was going to die. Luckily, the person at the door was a Capitol Police officer who hadn't identified himself. And even then, she said the situation was so intense that it was hard to tell if he even intended to help her. But it's especially harrowing because there's no question of what that angry mob would have done had they found her first. Under the circumstances, she had every right to question who was at the door, given that since the moment that she and the rest of the squad ran and won, they've been turned into hate objects by the right, replacing the old Republican canard of obsessively attacking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi or President Obama. The apprentice actor turned president and his minions on the media right have made vilifying AOC with sexist and racist attacks and insults an almost singular focus of the last two years. We all know that AOC and this crowd are a bunch of communists. They hate Israel. They hate our own country. AOC plus three, you know AOC? Not a good student, not good at anything, but she's got a good line of crap, I'll tell you. They run that party and they run the American left and they're going to let some young uppity come in here and upset the apple cart. I use these words literally. She is a viciously dishonest person. She's got a great line of That's about it. Someday the AOC moment will pass. It's too stupid to continue. Uppity. Oh, and did I mention that good old Margie Q. Green posed with an assault rifle alongside images of the squad as her campaign for Congress. Her ad was so incendiary that Facebook took it down, and then a bunch of North Georgians elected her. Then, just as with Nancy Pelosi, AOC, President Obama, and the squad, the MAGA cult leader even put a big old target on his own vice president during the riots, during the riots. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. And later, attacking Pence in real time during the insurrection for not having the courage to overturn a Democratic election, to which the mob chanted, hang Mike Pence. In their impeachment response today, lawyers for the disgraced former, the disgraced Florida retiree denied that he incited the riot and said the trial is unconstitutional because he's no longer president. They also say his remarks at the ellipse rally that preceded the riot were free speech protected by the First Amendment. Joining me now is Congresswoman Maxine Waters of California, chair of the House Financial Services Committee. And Congresswoman, um, it's always great to talk with you, but I I specifically wanted to talk to you today because you have been where AOC is. As somebody who's been obsessively attacked by the right, vilified, treated to sexism and racism, because you've been an active activist member of Congress since you've been there. We're, we're watching you now uh, back in the 1990s, you know, after the insurrections in Los Angeles. Can you just tell us how you feel hearing somebody like Alexandria, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tell that harrowing story and also your own experience having to be in that Capitol on 1-6? Thank you so much, Joy. As I listened to AOC, uh, my heart went out to her uh, because I know what she was experiencing and particularly uh, when she connected with the trauma uh, that she had experienced when she was sexually abused. And so she described in a very vivid way 
uh, what was happening with her when she heard them calling out, where is she? Where is she while she was hiding? And as she said, she thought uh, that this was the end for her, uh, that she could be killed. I know how she felt because I have been threatened also so many times, and you're absolutely correct. Uh, because I took on this president early, I called for his impeachment early, I have been threatened time and time again. The Oath Keepers, who were part of the domestic terrorists who came to the Capitol and invaded uh, our Capitol, uh, attempted to come to my office uh, in Los Angeles. They tried to organize other uh, domestic terrorists to join them. My community discovered what was going on and they turned up in big numbers. Uh, and of course, uh, the Oath Keepers uh, had a change of mind when they saw that the community was not gonna stand for it. I had to put out uh, a, a, a notice to all of my uh, community to say, Please don't come. Don't engage with the Oath Keepers. Uh, don't allow them uh, to get you involved in a confrontation because I was trying to keep the peace because I know that if they actually showed up and there was a confrontation, it would be bloody. And so it was not only been the Oath Keepers, as we went back and took a look at how many times I've been threatened and what has happened to some of these people. In April, 2018, a man named Anthony Lord Scott got three years probation and 100 hours of community service for threatening to kill me. Of course, the Oath Keepers, as I mentioned, who tried to come to my office, but was turned back uh, and they're very bloody and uh, they are white right wing uh, supremacists. Uh, also, there was a Richard Mel Phillips in Florida who pleaded guilty to leaving a threatening voicemail message uh, with my office. And so I discovered that uh, uh, he was also a sentence along with uh, several others. Uh, this Anthony uh, Lord Scott, uh, who is a Trump supporter in California, pleaded guilty to threatening me in a voicemail. Uh, and so he also was uh, was sentenced. And so it goes on and on and on. Uh, I am, of course, accustomed to being threatened, but I have to be concerned about security and I have to watch my back and I have to make sure that I'm not putting myself in a position where I can be harmed. Uh, I have to know, you know, where I'm going, when I'm going. I oftentimes have security, had it all during my campaign, have to make sure that I'm not allowing people to walk behind me. Uh, I have to look out before I step out to see if there are any, you know, strange looking people lottering around on and on and on. Uh, but I and other women, minority women in Congress are often threatened and we're at risk. And just as AOC was threatened that day, I was lucky, I was locked in my office. I would not leave it, even when they tried to get me to go to where they were uh, gathering all of the members in one room. I'm glad I didn't uh, because uh, of the contagion that took place there and the members who ended up with, uh, you know, uh, the COVID-19. Uh, but yeah, I recognize what she was saying and how she felt. And I know how I have to live my life. But what's so interesting about all of this is they try to make themselves the victim uh, when in, indeed uh, they are following the president of the United States of America who had advanced planning 
about the invasion uh, that took place in our capital. And even there's information that some of the planning came out of individuals working in his campaign. As a matter of fact, uh, he absolutely should be charged with premeditated murder uh, because of the lives that were lost uh, with this invasion, with this insurrection. And so, yes, we are threatened, but we can back up. We've got to fight as hard as we can uh, to see to it that there is some justice for the president of the United States to sit and watch the invasion and the insurrection and not say a word uh, because he knew that he had absolutely initiated it. And as some of them said, he invited us to come. We're here at the invitation mm. of the president of the United States. When he rallied, he said, go to the Capitol, fight hard. This is take back your country. And so if that's not uh, inciting uh, the kind of balance that uh, violence that we have witnessed, I don't know what is. Uh, indeed, Congresswoman, I want to note for our audience that the um, the Speaker of the House, who also was hiding under a table with some of her young staffers, I know a lot of the staffers who work for y'all are very young people, has issued a dear colleague letter. It says it's important to facilitate an accurate personal record. And for the healing process, it's also clear that we'll need to establish a 9-11 type commission to examine and report upon the facts, causes and security related to the terrorist mob attack on January 6th. I want to thank you, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, um, for that. And uh, please stay safe. Um, definitely, please stay safe and thank you. Thank you very and I much. And I want to now. Again, to be safe. Thank you very much. I want to now turn to Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general. And you heard the congresswoman. And Neil, I mean, the reality is, you know, you have Officer Sicknick um, lying in in honor in the Capitol now because he was beaten to death by the rioters. That is the definition of a lynch mob. And the reality is, if they were willing to beat a police officer to death, imagine had they gotten hold of one of the people who've been made negatively famous by right wing media and by the former president, Donald Trump, who made it his business to turn AOC, to turn Maxine Waters, to turn other members of the squad into hate objects. They, it was, it's a lynch mob. So I want to just ask you about this defense for this lynch mob that the president, the former president sent the argument that's being made by the Trump side is that he cannot be impeached because he's no longer president and that what he said in whipping up that crowd is free speech. I just want to note for the audience, this is the brief that they're arguing against. This is this thick brief, which uh, I'm going to spend the day reading. And this is their little 14 page response. OK, your thoughts exactly. Neil, on their argument. Exactly. So. So Donald Trump's lawyers and Trump are trying to distance themselves from this horrific attack. And it's like the January 6th mob is the only thing Donald Trump has ever made that he won't stick his name on in giant gold letters. And sadly for him, the upshot of those briefs is that this is what he's going to be most remembered for, Joy. And I absolutely agree with you. You know, the briefs today just make this really, really stark and clear. I mean, just starting with the writing itself, I mean, the House brief by the impeachment managers tells a story elegantly. It's an ugly story. It's an evil story, but it's linear and it tells the reader what she needs to know. And the Trump brief, by contrast, is schizophrenic. It's hard to follow. It misspells United States on the second line of the brief. It weighs in at 14 incoherent pages. And, you know, the, the upshot of that brief is they're trying to say Trump is engaged in free speech. I mean, give me a break. President, we've had presidents for 200 years 
We've never had impeachment proceedings against them because presidents don't say the kinds of things that Donald Trump said. And I think the House managers captured it so well. And yesterday, as you were pointing out, AOC in an even more powerful way, a very visceral way. And I think that's the problem Trump has is his lawyers are trying to make it out like he's just some crazy guy screaming at the TV. He's the president of the United States when this stuff is happening. And as Congresswoman Waters just said, while it's happening, what does he do? Nothing. If you were president, if I were president, any normal person on January 6th would have been horrified and done everything possible to stop it. This isn't free speech. This is incitement. Indeed. And let me play you one of the more ridiculous other other arguments that they're making. This is one of uh, Trump's lawyers, David Schoen. And he's saying that video of the actual insurrection should not be shown in the trial. Take a listen. Does this country really need to see videotapes? We know now, apparently, that Mr. Swalwell and the other managers tend to show videotapes of the riots and people calling in, people being hurt, police officers talking. Why does the country need that now? This has nothing to do with President Trump. And the country doesn't need to just watch videos of riots and unrest. We need to heal now. We need to move forward. This I'm not a lawyer. You're the great lawyer here, Neil. But this strikes me as me telling a gang of my friends, go in there and rob that bank. And, you know, they go in, they rob the bank. Some people get killed in the bank robbery. And then I say, you know, it shows people being being shot by my friends who I sent in there. I told them to go rob the bank. But we don't need to see that. It's traumatizing. That's just going to traumatize everybody. Don't show the video. Don't show the closed circuit video of what happened. Because that's going to make people upset. Like, that is not. Have you ever heard an argument like that? Well, I've heard it only from people who are really afraid of the facts. And that's what this guy is. I mean, they're just afraid of of showing what happened. I'm sure he's terrified of showing the Gabriel Sterling video, you know, the Georgia official on December 1st who went to the cameras and said, Mr. President, cut it out. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. What does Trump do? He goes and gives a bunch more speeches and says the kind of incendiary nonsense again and again and again. And that's the real problem. Some of this stuff, you could say if you were an alien landing from Mars, the statements by themselves might look like speech. The problem is they come in a context of Trump egging this on. And after he's been warned by the Georgia election officials, no less, someone's going to get shot. Um, It's going to be a fascinating trial, but it is going to be a trial with evidence. And that's why Donald Trump has a lot to fear. Yeah, indeed. Some of that evidence uh, is uh, the, the person who's lying in honor in our capital right now, a, because these people are also cop killers. I think that they may not want to have to address that either, uh, but they're going to have to. Uh, Neil Katyal, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. Uh, and up next on the readout, um, as we were just talking about, you heard it. You've seen the briefs, the little one, the little one and the big one. It's now time for Republicans to decide. Are they going to be the party, uh, you know, that has some honor? Or they can be the party of bizarre conspiracies and Margie Q. Green or what? Plus, Senator Sherrod Brown joins me on the Democrats' plans to go big on COVID stimulus, even if it means going it alone and reversing Trump's sinister policy, the the most sinister policy, the separation of migrant kids from their parents at the southern border. Kids like nine-year-old Alvaro. How old are you going to be? Nine. Are you hoping to get anything for your birthday? Yeah. What do you think you're going to get or what do you want to get, buddy? My dad. The readout continues after this. 
based on your conversations, are more of your members supportive of Green or Cheney? Well, first of all, I've rejected those statements by Marjorie. And, you know, I think uh, we're going to be talking tomorrow in conference. We're going to have an in-person meeting, uh, you know, in, in the Capitol where we're going to be talking through a lot of these issues internally. Uh, look, first of all, we're very united in our opposition to the devastating economic hits that President Biden has been doing in his first two weeks. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. In normal times, that would not have been a tough question for Republican Congressman Steve Scalise to answer. You have two conservative lawmakers in the same party. One voted to uphold her oath and hold a president accountable. The other espoused conspiracy theories that a plane did not, in fact, hit the Pentagon on 9-11 and that the deadly school shootings at Sandy Hook and Parkland were actually staged. Now, of course, these are not normal times. And for this Republican Party, you are more likely to face repercussions for following the Constitution than for following QAnon. In fact, more House Republicans have been outspoken on the dire need to remove Congresswoman Liz Cheney from House leadership for voting to impeach than to denounce Margie Q. Green for her dangerous lies. In a rare move, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell jumped into the House Republicans infighting, defending Cheney, calling her a leader with deep convictions and the courage to act on them and adding that she is an important leader in our party and in our nation. And while not mentioning Green by name, which would count as courage in our present dystopia, he also said, quote, loony lies and conspiracy theories are cancer for the Republican Party and our country. And lawmakers who embrace them are not living in reality. Well, apparently that did not sit well with the congresswoman from not living in reality, North Georgia, who fired back the real cancer for the Republican Party is weak Republicans who only know how to lose gracefully. Joining me now is David Frum, senior editor at The Atlantic. And, you know, David, I feel like it crystallizes like chef's kiss. Perfect. Kiss crystallizes the state of the Republican Party that the guy defending the party for not expelling the lady who thinks that Jewish people have lasers that they aim at California is also the guy who said that he's David Duke without the baggage and then got put in leadership because that's the thing that happens in the Republican Party. So I feel like the answer to his question is obvious. Of course, they're going to support Margie Green over Liz Cheney, right? Well, let's look at this without ethics, without morality. Let's just look at this the way a professional politician would, very cold-bloodedly from the point of gaining, holding, and using power. Republicans have a terrible trap, um, and it's expressed by a pair of polls from the state of Georgia. Um, in the state of Georgia, Georgia, 
Uh, Joe Biden's approval rating is now in the high 50s. Um, the feel, support for President Trump and the, and the, the feelings about the Capitol coup are in the low 40s. It's pretty obvious where Georgia public opinion is. But among Georgia Republicans, 85% support President Trump and the majorities are defense of the attempted Capitol coup. And so Republicans are in this whip, um, whipsaw between the voters they have and the voters they need. And that's the thing the DCCC, I never remember how many C's to use, is using right now because that adds so many people who watch this program I've seen uh, where they are identifying people with QAnon. That's running in swing districts like uh, Ventura Cal County in California, like South Miami Beach and South Miami, where Republicans got lucky in 2020 and could get unlucky in 2022. And, and just to make that exact point, Running on the 2022 ballot in Georgia will be Raphael Warnock, who has to run again for reelect. Kemp, the governor who's being vilified by Trump as not flipping the election uh, because he didn't flip the election. And Margie Green, they're all going to be running at the same time. So Georgia's going to get to have a referendum on whether they prefer the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church or that lady in terms of who symbolizes Georgia. But I want to play for you because I think you make a great point. Speaking of cruelly and viciously and just coldly using power, here's Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader. Well, with regard to the former president, we're going into an impeachment trial next week. Uh, we're all going to listen to what the lawyers have to say and making the arguments and work our way through it. President Trump is 100 percent within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. This process will reach its resolution. Our system will resolve any recounts or litigation. We're going to have an orderly transfer from this administration to the next one. What we all say about it is frankly irrelevant. And the point that's made there is that the the first thing that he's responding to is the is the answer to the question: Should he have spoken up earlier about the big lie about the election? He doesn't even answer it. He skips that question and goes on to something else. He, the Rob Portmans of the world, who voted with Trump ninety nine percent of the time, who excused him, who pretended they didn't hear what he said, who pretended they can't read when Twitter happens, isn't the problem that the party itself has laid down. For the far right for so long, they don't know how to stand up anymore. Well, McConnell was caught in a very specific quandary. Uh, Marjorie Green comes from the extreme upper left-hand corner of Georgia, um, the greater Chattanooga metropolitan area, an exurban district. Um, and of course, she, she won in, in November of, of 2020. Her corner of the state is one of the places where the vote the voter turnout dropped most between November of 2020 and the runoff mm -hmm. in January. Uh, 2021. I mean, there's a real argument that, that she helped to cause the loss of the Senate uh, in the two Senate seats in Georgia and helped to cost the Republicans the Senate majority. And McConnell, that has to be driving him crazy. On the other hand, he's worried now about even further losses if he drives people like that away. So it's really, he's got, he's got his fingers in one of those Christmas finger traps where, you know, you keep pulling and there's no way out. Uh, yeah, there is no way. And we are now uh, confirming NBC News has confirmed that uh, Miss Marjorie Taylor Greene is currently meeting with the House Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I'm not sure if he's giving her a high five, a hug. I don't know. But I highly doubt that he is reprimanding her. Just my guess. David Frum, thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. And up next.
Congressional Democrats are pushing ahead with a nearly $2 trillion COVID relief package, even if they have to pass it with zero Republican support. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown joins me next on The Readout. As politicians debate the finer points of coronavirus relief, Americans are suffering like this out-of-work West Virginian, Pamela Garrison. Senator Manchin and Senator Capito, um, I'm not just calling on them. I'm calling them out. Mm. I am demanding that our kids have food, shelter, that uh, we, to help our whole our whole state, besides our whole nation, lift us up out of poverty. I just want y'all to join us and call your senators and get mad about this, people. This is unjust. As the White House pointed out last week, more than 10 million Americans are unemployed. 14 million renters are behind on their rent payments and 29 million adults along with at least 8 million children, are currently struggling with food insecurity. I'm joined now by Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, incoming chair of the Senate Banking Committee. And Senator, you know, I, I don't want to just pick on Joe Manchin, but uh, he is her senator, the, this woman who just spoke. You just heard her speak. And he has said that he is for reconciliation, but he does not support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. He's quibbled about who should be getting the stimulus checks, whether it should be limited. He's and he's carping and spending a lot of time getting in his feelings because the vice president of the United States went on TV in his state without his permission. Apparently, she needs his permission. Are, are, are all the Democrats on the same page as to the need and the scale of the response? Uh, yes. Uh, Joe Biden spoke to the caucus, to the Democratic caucus today. So did Janet Yellen. They both said, go big. Uh, Janet Yellen was on longer. She took us questions for probably half an hour. She said over and over, we have to go big. There's it's it, there's there's no it's better to overdo this than underdo it, overshoot it than to undershoot it, whatever term she used. But the, the over and over, she kept coming back to going big. And that means money. That means um, unemployment extension. Uh, benefits. It means um, the, the direct payments. It means uh, significant rental assistance dollars. It means help for small business. It means opening up our schools. We've not. Mitch McConnell simply refused to support public education, really, for his whole career, but especially now in terms of dollars to schools. And you can't really get the economy going again unless schools are open for children because of parents work life, all of those things. And we've got to go big. There's just no question that's the right way to go. So the, let's just to be clear, the, the, the Republican, what they put up was is, is actually sort of insulting to the American people. They're saying only a thousand dollars, but they want to stop it at those making 50,000 a year. They only want to throw in three hundred dollars for unemployment down from the four. Um, they want no no federal eviction moratorium. So go ahead and people get evicted at will. No change to the minimum wage. That plan is dead. Right. The, the, the Biden plan is what you guys are going to vote on. Yeah, we're going to vote. on. I mean, it'd be great if the Republicans really wanted to do bipartisanship, but they don't. Um, they, we, we, I, I was here early time for me in the Senate in 2009 and 10, and, and they negotiated and they slow walked and it cost us getting Medicare at 55. It cost us from doing the Recovery Act right. We've paid for it. Um, our economy's paid for it. The American public's paid for it for a decade. You could argue we paid for it politically, too. That's obviously of lesser importance to the country. But it's clear they, they are really good at slow walking. They are really good at feigning bipartisanship. But when they're really good at, at delay, 
And the longer we delay, they, they, they forget about the suffering out there that you started that with, the lady from West Virginia. I mean, people are hungry. People, we're, we're going to see a wave of evictions in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the winter, uh, if we don't act. And if we don't act decisively and go big, the, the Republican chair of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, wants us to go big. Econ most economists yeah. want us to go big. The governor of West Virginia, a Republican, wants us to go big. It's Republican yeah. House members and senators in these interest groups that say, oh, no, you got to do less. Well, they're wrong. Well, and well, it, does go big mean 2000 or 1400? Because that's starting to confuse folks. I mean, people were like tweeting well, at that, Joe that's, Biden that's, that, you know, I mean, to me going. Yeah, yeah I, it could be. I mean, I I'd like to see us do an additional 2000. I know that's but it, it whether be it's 2000, 2000 yeah. total. Yeah. But but I mean, there's so many other things. The, the rental assistance is really, really important. Keeping people so they don't force so people, keeping them out of foreclosure on their homes, keeping uh, making sure there's money for school so that students can go back to, to school in person. It, it, it's it's all of those things are are what going big means. And Republicans just don't want to go big. They want to slow walk. They want to restrict government. They want to make they want to show that government can't work. Well, back in March, when we did the CARES Act, we showed government works in this country. Twelve million Americans stayed out of poverty because of what the Congress did. Then Congress did nothing for eight months. And by August, when all the benefits were starting to fall away, thousands of people a day were falling into poverty in this country. So we know what works. We know going big matters. We know the Biden plan will work for this country and we'll, we'll, we'll defeat the virus and we'll get the economy back on its feet much more quickly. And I know that one of the things that's happened is that you have seen this phenomenon of people who are, you know, desperate, who are taking like the last bit of their money and trying to play that game, you know, that they had on Reddit, where you go in and try to short, you know, to beat the the the, the stock shorters. And we've seen a lot of that happening. Are you concerned that 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 the level of desperation is going to mean that people are going to suffer even more if they lose money when the bad guys jump back in and the hedge funders win in the end? Yeah, the 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 um, damage by not doing enough. One of the things Janet Yellen today said, this could scar the economy for a generation. It will mean it will mean more suicides, already meaning more mental health problems for people, um, problems for our children, missing a year of school and all the socialization and the academic learning that come with that. Uh, people throw people that lose their homes, what that means for them for the next decade, everything goes upside down. All of these kinds of things is why we need to go big and why why Biden's right about this, why Democrats are going to stick together, you know, from Bernie Sanders to Joe Manchin. We're going to stick together and we're going to do this right. All right. We're going to keep an eye on Manchin, though. So thank you very much. We appreciate you, <laughs> Senator right. Sherrod Brown. Thank you. All. Appreciate you. OK, still. Cheers. Still ahead. Reckoning with the previous administration's most indefensible, monstrous policy, the forced separation of migrant children from their parents. President Biden has a plan to put things right. But can it work? We'll be right back. The Trump administration was the most openly hostile to immigrants in decades. So it's no surprise that the man who called Mexican migrants murderers and rapists would embark on a campaign meant to demonize and terrorize immigrants and asylum seekers. He stranded 10,000 asylum seekers in Mexico, forced to live in squalor. Aided by his proudly xenophobic henchman, Stephen Miller, the former president went about intentionally detaining and separating families. 
The goal was to inflict maximum trauma by caging babies, toddlers, and effectively orphaning innocent children in hopes that the word would get out and other would-be migrants would be terrified into staying away. Like so much about the Trump administration, the cruelty was the point. My colleague Jacob Soboroff spoke to one of the victims who remains separated. Are you hoping to get anything for your birthday? Yeah. What do you think you're going to get or what do you want to get, buddy? My dad. You want to get your dad for your birthday? That, that would be a nice present, huh, bud? Yeah. Almost immediately after taking office, President Biden has set about undoing that damage. Last week, the Justice Department rescinded a memo that established a zero-tolerance enforcement policy for migrant border crossings. That policy resulted in thousands of family separations because children were not allowed to stay with their parents while they are in custody. Lawyers say they still have not reached the parents of 611 children who were separated during the previous administration. Today, the current president signed executive orders to reverse his predecessor's policies on asylum seekers and refugees. He announced that he would establish a task force charged with reunifying families separated by a policy that can unironically be described as evil. And the newly confirmed secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and the first ever Latino immigrant to serve in the cabinet post, Alejandro Mayorkas, will head the task force with the attorney general and secretaries of state and health and human services playing supporting roles. I'm not making new law. I'm eliminating bad policy. We're going to work to undo the moral and national shame of the previous administration that literally, not figuratively, ripped children from the arms of their families, their mothers and fathers at the border, and with no plan, none whatsoever, to reunify the children who are still in custody and, uh, and their parents. First Lady Jill Biden is also expected to play a role. It's quite a departure from the previous First Lady, who visited the epicenter of the family separation crisis while wearing a jacket that read, I really don't care. Do you? Overcoming this stain on American history is a daunting task. And after the break, how President Biden plans to do it. Stay with us. President Biden has made it clear that immigration is a top priority for his administration. Just hours after being inaugurated, he sent Congress an ambitious immigration bill that would create an eight-year path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants, boost border security, and increase funding for Central American countries if they help to address the root causes of mass migration. And late today, the president announced new orders, reviewing his predecessor's immigration policies, while also making clear he plans to reunite migrant families who were separated by the barbaric policies of the previous administration. For more, I'm joined by Maria Inahosa, president of Futuro Media and author of Once I Was You, and Jacob Soboroff, MSNBC correspondent and author of Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. Two great friends who've written two really important books. Uh, so I'm going to start with you, Jacob. Having seen this policy break families apart up close, just from, from your point of view, how coherent is the Biden policy response? And do you think from what you've heard about it so far, it will work? It doesn't go as far as advocates and families and lawyers would like, Joy. But I have to say it is an historic first step. Uh, on an historic day that is literally four years in the making. I mean, we all know at this point that the deliberate cruelty of this policy uh, was 
set into motion almost immediately on the first days of the Trump administration. And after separating 5,500 children, torturing, in the words of Physicians for Human Rights, uh, from their parents deliberately for no other reason uh, than to scare other people from coming to this country, we are now seeing um, what President Biden's promise is going to look like. And one thing I will say I was surprised by, which, and I have been, quite frankly, the White House will probably tell you this, badgering them for details about this, is that the attorney general will sit on this task force in addition to the secretaries of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, um, and and other uh, important organizations and members of the U.S. government. And what that signals is accountability could be an important piece in all of this. When you heard that the president of the United States, President Biden, called this criminal criminal as he was running uh, for office, there were questions about whether or not he really meant it. Uh, This sends a strong signal, um, although not a definitive answer, that that may very well be the case. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. You know, and Maria, you know, there's the policy that took place in this country. Um, but number one, it didn't work because people kept coming because there are broader issues internationally um, in Central America that continue to draw people despite the terror that was inflicted on the children and families here. But then there's also the Mexico part. You and I have talked about this because they're going to need a partner. They're going to need Mexico, which has not always they seemed real friendly with Trump. How friendly are they with Biden and will they help? Well. Look, the situation is, is that Mexico needs to help undo, again, these hurtful, torturous policies of the Trump administration. Look, this gets into very intense Mexican politics right now, which, which of course, it's very geopolitical. But in its simplest form, the Mexican president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, was very happy to cooperate with Donald Trump in making Mexico the entire wall. So, Joy, I am still getting phone calls from people who I've reported on who are stuck in Mexico, who are trying to get here for claims for refugees. This is not a question of like, this is not a good time to come to the United States. Maybe you should wait. This is not we're trying to get things in order. This is not a choice for people. That's what we need to understand. This is not an immigration question. People who are coming here now from Central America are desperate joy. They are desperate. They are people who don't have a choice. They're running for their lives. So as Jacob says, this is a historic day. This this tone is so important, but it needs to go even further, Joy, because what's radical is not what Biden may do. What's radical is what has been done up until now. I mean, taking women's uteruses and the babies uh, uh, from their from their parents. Yeah. And, you know, Jacob, that, that that State Department piece is really important, right? Because you have a lot of, I mean, p- part of the search is going to have to be international. They're going to have to find out if parents were sent back to places like Honduras, if they were, if they're stuck in Mexico, are they in Guatemala? Is, is the child in the United States? Like the match for these 611, it's going to be an international challenge. And I think it's going to go beyond that. I think that that number, you know, it started 545, then it was 628, then it was 666, now it's 611. Um, children whose parents have not been reached by the U.S. government to this day, over three years after the separations uh, began. But 
Talk to the ACLU. They'll tell you that number is probably 1,000 parents and children who remain separated. It's an important subgroup that the Biden administration has not yet committed to bringing back to this country. Parents and children who were separated, who experienced the same trauma as the still separated children, yet now remain deported in their home country without a assurance today from the Biden administration that they will be brought back. And one thing I want to say, in addition, Joy, is this is all playing out while parents and children are being deported today. The Biden administration has signaled they want to stop expulsions of unaccompanied migrant children. But those deportation flights are leaving um, literally today, as you and I and Maria all talk Mm -hmm. to each other. And so there are a lot of policies that intersect with the separation policy, different ways that people can be separated that are still ongoing uh, to this very day. And, And the administration needs to answer for those as well. Yeah. And Maria, I mean, that, that's the issue, right, is this immigration policy has to also presume we're presuming that it's 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 making it more open for people to come. That's not 100 percent clear because you've also had the Biden administration saying, no, no, this is not a good time to come. They want to stem migration, but at the same time erase the evil that happened. Just talk from your point of view about how realistic that is and how much better that's going to be. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be the evil policy, but your thoughts. Joy, if we can figure out how to send a man or a woman to the moon, then you have to be able to tell me, and Alejandro Mallorcas con mucho cariño, and Julissa Arce, who is going to be, who is Vice President Biden's wife's uh, uh, chief, uh, I'm sorry, the the first lady's chief of staff, Julissa Arce, the lawyer, Afro-Dominican. We know they have the best of intentions. But this goes way beyond those numbers. And I I would say to Jacob and to the ACLU, this is much, much more. We're going to get into some very complicated territory here. You have parents here in the United States who have now taken these children and fostered them. They are going to have to return these children to their parents. We have created the government of the United States and not just the Trump administration, because, of course, this has been going on for Democrats and Republicans, have created a humanitarian crisis. It's an international humanitarian crisis. So there is no patience now for, well, it's going to take some time or we have to figure this out or another commission. No, all of the emphasis, they need to stop it now. And frankly, I would go even further that Joe Biden needs to make a much larger statement a national day of mourning and healing, something that makes it clear that this can never, ever happen again. Yeah, indeed. Maria Inojosa, Jacob Silbroth, thank you both for all of your incredible reporting and uh, journalism on this. Um, Okay, so thank you both. But we want to end on a positive note. This is the second day of Black History Month. And here is a fact that I'll bet you didn't know. It was on this day in 1897 that one of the greatest and simplest kitchen utensils was patented. And I'm talking about the ice cream scooper. And do you know who you have to thank for that wonderful invention? A black man by the name of Alfred L. Kral. According to Reader's Digest, Kral was a porter in a Pittsburgh hotel when he came up with the brilliant idea, calling it an ice cream mold and disher. 124 years later, the design still holds up. And that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.